0: On January 3rd, Missouri's General Assembly will reconvene for what's sure to be an active legislative session. And one of the big running storylines is the relationship between the Republican legislature and Republican Governor Eric Greitens. To break down this relationship, we brought in Republican Senator Caleb Rowden. The Columbia Republican joins us on another edition of Politically Speaking. So let's hit the music.
1: This is the Politically Speaking podcast, a candid conversation with the Show Me State's biggest political newsmakers.
0: I'm Jason Mersenbaum. And I'm Joe Manners That's Eric Greitens, Navy <laughs> SEALs running for governor. And I'm really, really glad to be on with you, Jason and Joe. I'm going to push back. that you can still rock in America. I'm one of the hosts of this show, Jason Rosenbaum, the interim political editor for St. Louis Public Radio. Joe Manis is taking some well-deserved time off, and we're actually doing a collaboration of sorts with our friends from KBIA in Columbia. My special co-host for the week is...
1: Bram Sablesmith, health and wealth reporter at KBIA and a former intern to Jason Rosenbaum at the St. Louis Beacon.
0: That is probably your greatest achievement, by the way. Um, and, and coming back to the show for the second time, but the first time as the state senator from the beautiful 19th District beautiful. of Missouri, we, we have as our guest today. Caleb Rowden. And uh, just for our listeners, what does the 19th District encompass? I obviously know this because I used to live in the 19th District. But for people that don't quite know uh give us a sense of what your district is. Yeah,
3: so it's Boone and Cooper County, uh are, are the the two counties, the entirety of those counties, you know, covers everything politically and geographically from downtown Columbia to Otterville, Missouri. And so, uh obviously um representing it is is it's fun, but it's also incredibly interesting and and uh you got to be on your toes pretty much all day, every day.
0: You also happen to represent the Isle of Capri Casino. in Boonville. <laughs> I do. Is it still called
3: that? Yeah. Or did they change yeah. their name? No. Nope. Still, Isle Capri. I, I used to go.
0: I used to go there when I was a student at Mizzou, and I think that going there actually made me want to gamble less. <laughs> um, and I'm and I'm just going to leave it at there because I do not want to insult the fine people that work. <laughs> I don't
3: there. gamble. It does have a pretty pretty solid buffet that we've. Uh, Taken in a few times over the course of time. It,
0: it is it is the it is a jewel of central Missouri. Amen. So before we get into our conversation, I'm going to play a feature that our reporter, Marshall Griffin, uh created and we're going to use that as a jumping off point to talk about what could be at a very eventful few months. Here is Marshall's story. Among the bills
2: already pre-filed for 2018 are ones that would bar labor unions from deducting dues from public employees' paychecks without their permission and eliminate the requirement that companies pay non-union workers the same amount as unionized employees for public works projects. Republicans are seeking to lower state income tax rates again three years after passing another tax cut. They include language to raise the state's fuel tax and reduce several tax breaks to help offset large revenue losses. Republican Representative Travis Fitzwater of Callaway County is handling the bill in the House.
3: We have a budget that continues to grow. We're record numbers on our budget. Um, really wanted to look at that and say, how do we give relief uh, to Missourians and ensure that we're not continuing to have these record numbers without giving relief back to our the citizens in Missouri?
2: But Minority House Leader Gail McCann Beatty of Kansas City is skeptical about the plan.
3: There are a lot of moving parts going on right now um, to be able to say that all of a sudden our Budget issues are going to be resolved, and we're going to have plenty of money for, for additional tax cuts. We don't know that for sure yet.
2: There's also unfinished business from this past session that both parties want addressed. That includes failed attempts to keep in-home health care benefits for low-income and elderly Missourians. Lawmakers made a last-ditch attempt to provide funding by shifting unused money from numerous boards and commissions. Crichton's later vetoed it, calling it an unconstitutional gimmick. Democratic State Representative Deb Lavender of St. Louis County hopes the governor will approve it this time around.
1: There
3: are funds in health, mental health, and social services that are sitting there. What better use to use these funds than to put it towards our seniors and people with disability living at home, just needing a little bit of help with their home care.
2: Both parties will likely try again to ban free meals, travel, and entertainment from lobbyists to elected officials, a high priority for Republican House Speaker Todd Richardson. Lawmakers may also try to deal with some of the shortcomings of a recently enacted constitutional amendment putting campaign donation limits in place. Republicans floated the idea of placing limits on contributions to municipal and county candidates who can currently receive donations of unlimited size. And several Democratic lawmakers want to make it more difficult for candidates to coordinate with political action committees. Republican Elijah Haar of Springfield is Speaker Pro Tem of the House.
0: More than anything, you know, under Speaker Richardson, what we've done, we've instituted a, a very significant process for um, claims of sexual harassment in the, in the Capitol.
2: It should be noted that what Har is talking about only covers the Missouri House, although the Senate has its own procedures in place for handling sexual harassment claims. Greitens will likely again push for a longer waiting period for ex-office holders to become lobbyists. Earlier this year, he called for a cooling-off period that would equal the amount of time a person in question served in the legislature, which in some cases would be up to 16 years. There will likely be more inter-party disputes between the governor and some fellow Republicans. His push to get the Missouri Housing Development Commission to cut off issuing state tax credits for low-income housing puts him at odds with Lt. Gov. Mike Parson and State Treasurer Eric Schmidt, both Republicans. And GOP Senator Gary Romine of Farmington is unhappy over Greiton stacking the State Board of Education with members who then voted to fire Commissioner Margie Van Dieven. Romine is planning to block their confirmations in the Senate.
4: I feel like I have a duty and responsibility. They didn't go through the confirmation process. They're not qualified to serve on the board, and they've made, taken a vote that indicates that they are going to be more of a puppet of the governor than an independent voice. The
2: 2018 regular session begins next Wednesday at 12 noon.
0: So, Senator, you heard the views of many of your colleagues, both uh, on the Democratic side and the Republican side, the House and the Senate. What, what's kind of your overall sense of what it's going to be the big issues in the 2018 legislative session?
3: Yeah, it sounds like an easy year, I think, uh, after hearing that. Now, you know, I think we've got, uh, I think it's no secret, and it was referenced there, some of the um, consternation that folks have with some of the appointments, um, you know, specific ones, and 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 how that plays out. The, most of those, all of those interim appointments, have to be either confirmed, um, voted down, or withdrawn by I think February third. And so basically, you have got the month of January um, to to confront those issues. And so I, I have had numerous conversations with colleagues uh, of of all stripes that you know are are for and against uh, you know some of these appointments and trying to figure out, okay, how do we move beyond what is inevitably going to be probably a pretty tough uh, and maybe a somewhat unprecedented January as it relates to the confirmation of these appointments by a Republican legislature uh, of a Republican governor and move on to February through May and, you know, really have a conversation about a lot of these policy initiatives that that, that were mentioned in, in the story. I think those are the things that uh, our our constituents sent us there to do, you know, and I think of uh, anything that I've learned over the course of, of my last uh, year, certainly as I've uh, been in the Senate, but I think just generally speaking, folks, uh, they just want a government that works. Uh, I think that really is a, 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 above anything else. They have their policy concerns. They have the things that they're passionate about. And we talk a lot about those things. But I think ultimately folks want people to go down there, have conversations, be willing to dialogue, be willing to to engage with folks that they know that they're probably going to disagree with and find paths forward on stuff, and so I think we we're going to have to do that a lot uh, this year because I think the variables are uh, just just different. Uh, I think the the kind of the tension at times between the Senate and the governor uh, is, is a, a layer that maybe we expected, but maybe we didn't expect this quickly uh, in his in his tenure, and so um, we th- there's there's no shortcut out of it, and so we've got to figure out a way forward and, and get past that nomination. Um, conversation and then start talking about policy that that we think is uh, good for the people of Missouri.
1: You've spoken a lot about ethics reform in the past. and yeah. Last year it was a, a focus of the legislative session. Last year, did you accomplish everything you'd set out
3: to? And in- no, no, certainly not. I think we, you know, we got started. Uh, I think in in the 2016 legislative session, I think my last year in the House, we passed the the revolving door bill uh, that that implemented. Uh, Initially, we passed it out of the House, I think, at a year. I would have preferred it to have been at two at that point, but I think it came out a year. Uh, the Senate passed it back to us basically with no revolving door other than if you resign, you can't lobby until your your elected term was up. Uh, and then we settled on six months, uh, so basically effectively a session uh, that, that you're cooling off. Uh, I think that's it's it's a start. Uh, I think you've got the lobbyist gift bill uh, that that I filed again this year. I think it was the first bill I pre filed. Um, and, you know, the, the Senate is has always been the issue there. Uh, and, and I don't think that's any secret. And friends of mine and colleagues who uh, who I fought with when I was in the House now that I've served with and are good friends with in the Senate. We just have a disagreement on the issue. I think, uh, you know, some folks have been very outspoken about it. they would they would prefer. Uh, basically, the way that it is now, which is if you if you take something that's transparent, your constituents know what it is. Uh, they can see that your opponent can run ads against you saying, "Hey, you've, they took ABCDE," uh, and and that's a a perfectly legitimate argument, honestly. And it's I think it's the argument. Seeing how uh, really awful Amendment Two uh, has made our campaign finance uh, structure in Missouri, it's the argument that I agree and believe in on the campaign finance side. I think the difference being. Uh, you can make a pretty strong case that, um, uh, you know, any sort of significant regulation on campaign finances is, is a violation of, of, of uh, First Amendment rights. I don't think you can make that same argument on a lobbyist gift, you know, sort of ban. I don't think that me not be take, be, being able to take a lobbyist gift is a, an infringement on, on my First Amendment rights or the First Amendment rights of a lobbyist. So, so I think that's the fundamental difference. I'm going to keep pushing it. Um, you know, uh, hopefully we can find a, a path forward uh, uh, on something uh, if it's not a full ban, something that, that I think moves the ball down the field a little bit.
0: One of the things that Marshall alluded to in his story was possibly some bipartisan consensus that things need to be done in light of the aforementioned amendment, too. One of the things that Representative Justin Alferman told us on our show, and he's a Republican from Herman, is there may be a push to provide campaign finance limits for municipal and county candidates, because right now there are none. It's possible for somebody to raise millions of dollars in some of those committees and possibly transfer it to like a 501c4. Um, I've also heard some Democrats wanting to possibly tighten the coordination restrictions that a candidate uh, would have to follow when it comes to them coordinating with PACs, because right now a candidate can go to a fundraiser for a PAC. Tell people to raise unlimited amounts of money for that PAC as long as they don't say specifically that that PAC is going to be used for them, that's totally right. legal under the new system. So I just want to know I know that there's kind of a general aversion among Republicans to providing restrictions to campaign donations, but in light of those aforementioned shortcomings, do you think that there might be some bipartisan consensus to do either of those things I just mentioned?
3: Yeah, I think you know on on the first on the first part of it, the the local officials. I I don't know. I can't. Uh, I don't know any rhyme or reason as to why that was. It, you know, if that was intentional or not. I, I I obviously wasn't involved in those conversations, but it is incredibly odd and, and just doesn't make any sense. Uh, that that the state legislature and and, uh, statewide officials would be under a ban that that local folks aren't. So, you know, I I certainly think there will be a push on that. I think on the other on the other piece of it, I I doubt that you will be able to restrict it any further than effectively what happens at the federal level. And, And I think our system of coordination and, you know, being able to raise money for a leadership pack, you know, type of entity, um, they can do that at the federal level. I think you'd have a hard time moving past that. Uh, I think probably that would get challenged in court and I think would have a hard time standing up. So uh, as someone who probably has always been a little bit torn uh, on on the campaign finance issue of whether or not there should be uh, you know, finance limits, I think the idea of someone writing a million-dollar check uh, is not something that is probably in the best interest of, of the state and uh, uh, our political process as a whole. But I've come to find out, and I've come to learn that that the the opposite of that, and kind of the the tendency to move the other way and do it in a way that isn't really effective at all, actually makes the system much much worse. Uh, and so, you know, we're going to have to find a way out of this at some point. Uh, hopefully, that that just allows there to be no, number one, we don't we don't actually really know what the law says. I mean, MEC is doing their best to to try and navigate this poorly written, you know, poorly executed law. Um, but th- there needs to be a system that that people understand it, and we can just move on and, and start talking about more important issues.
1: Well, I want to ask something about um, uh, an area where there could be some bipartisan um, movement, <laughs> uh, which is uh, on opioids and the opioid confronting the opioid epidemic. Yeah. We just had, um, you know, the day before we're recording this podcast, we just saw the numbers again that for the second year in a row, life expectancy in the United States has gone down. After you know years, decades of of trending upwards, and that's due primarily to the opioid epidemic. Um, Democrats have made this a central issue going into the special session coming in, but it's also been something that um, Republicans have worked strongly on. Yeah. Uh, Randall Williams in the Health Department has, you know, mentioned favorably um, things like um, needle exchanges. Mm-hmm. There's the you know, again, uh, Missouri's. When, the, you know, the PDMP, the yeah, sure. The PDMP, you know. Yeah,
3: um. yeah. no, I think there's – uh, there there are plenty of opportunities to work together on that issue. You know, it's an issue that uh, there there's no question. I mean, when you look at – you can't go anywhere. It's interesting. I went to a – right before I came here, was it a, a – a, meeting for uh, local officials and superintendents and, you know, public school officials, and you can't go anywhere. Even a conversation like that, they're talking about the op- opioid problem with, with students, high school students, et cetera. And so, I mean, it permeates every piece of our life at this point. Um, you know, I, I want to commend um, the the governor and his folks. You, you, you said, Dr. Williams, um, they're they're doing they're looking at the issue, I think, fundamentally differently uh, than the previous administration. And, you know, it was kind of a burgeoning issue when Governor Nixon was in office and, and you know, it really has taken on um, new legs at this point. But Dr. Williams and the thing that they're doing, I think, that really is interesting and really important is that they're looking at it. It's not just him. It's not the guy. It's not the DHS guy solely, but it's uh, and Precise, who's the corrections director and, you know, other other. Um, folks that maybe aren 't directly tied, but there are a lot of kind of indirect correlations there uh, they 're just looking at it differently, and I think that that 's really really important um, they 're leading on the issue i think it 's one of those issues that has become unnecessarily a little bit partisan you know in the in the p d m p space and, and some other things it 's important to note in the p d m p world now we 've got you know seventy percent of the of the state population that 's covered by these local um, entities that have popped up so uh, you know, th- there's plenty of work to be done there, and it is like like a lot of what we do down in Jefferson City. It's it's not partisan, but it also is tough to find. Knowing it's such a complex and such a, a really prevalent issue, how you get to a governmental solution that helps fix the problem uh, it, it is tough. It's just tough, and and I think that requires more work, harder work. You know, than maybe sometimes. In, in this environment of political expediency and in this environment of let's kind of appeal to the lowest common denominator of knowledge and information in our constituents, um, doing that extra work on those big issues is really tough and there's not a lot of incentive for it. That, that, that's something that has always frustrated me in Jefferson City. But yeah, it's one of those issues that's just ripe for us to get together and say, hey, look, politics is what it is and we want to beat you in 2018 and 2020, but this is real life, life and death, uh, you know, of of millions uh, of our constituents. Uh, and so we've got to find paths forward if they exist.
0: One of the bills that one of your colleagues has actually put forward, and that's Senator Scott Sifton of Afton, is increasing penalties for people that deal heroin. And I know mm-hmm. that opioids and heroin are, are not the same thing necessarily, yeah. but they're often linked in, yeah. in many respects. So this is going to be a nuanced, complicated question, but I'll try to as best as I can to lay it out. Um, There has, in my in my observation, there has been a movement across the country to de-emphasize criminal punishment for for heroin users and try to steer them to treatment, which makes some sense because there was an emphasis on incarceration. Back in the 1980s with the crack epidemic, which obviously did a a lot of harm to the African-American community. So I'm struggling to see why there should be less law enforcement criminal punishment for heroin users and an emphasis and an increase of law enforcement on the dealers when really unless the dealers are going door to door selling heroin to people. The reason the dealers exist is because the demand is being driven by the users. Yeah. So, uh, what? What? How do you respond to that? Because I know that the, it's politically really popular to k- crack down on drug dealers, and I'm not justifying people dealing drugs because it's illegal. But how? How do you 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 resolve that 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 conflict I just mentioned?
3: Yeah, it's tough, and I think it kind of goes back a couple of things. It kind of goes back to the you mentioned the, this whole idea that y- you got to be tough on crime, uh, and that's been something that politically has been you know used as kind of a, a, a saying that you know grabs attention quickly. But we don't really dig into what that means, uh, and what that means has actually changed, right? So because we've we've become more knowledgeable about. Um, you know the 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 mental things that are involved in drug use, and 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 there's so many things that have just evolved over the course of time um, that that now we can make a more educated, informed um, uh, view of you know this particular policy. One thing that I think is really important in this space is some work that I I did in um in partnership with uh, and PreSythe, who's the corrections director it's called the justice reinvestment initiative and they've done it uh, in in states across the country the council of state governments kind of come in and help with the policy but we've been meeting um every month i, I went to dc with uh, director Precythe, uh and our mental health director in the state and and we're talking about some of these things we're talking about okay now we we understand more about what this looks like. We understand some of the root causes. We understand that this is a really substantive issue, and we also understand that um, people now are using prisons as basically a mechanism for treatment and 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 that becomes a problem on a couple of fronts one i don 't think it 's the most effective way to treat folks, but two, we are on the verge of having to to build two new prisons. Uh, in our state, uh, which will come at a four hundred million dollar cost and fifty million dollars a year to maintain, and so we have a there's a fiscal reality, but I think there's a, a wellness of life sort of reality um, that would say, okay, let's step back and and kind of to your point, yeah, the 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 user versus the dealer and those sorts of things and the various types of drugs, kind of the heroin crack, uh, you know, uh, comparisons that have been on display for a long time. We just have to be smarter, and and I think it's it needs to be. It needs to become politically expedient to be smart about these things, and and I think that over the course of time it will, because this uh, issue touches a lot of people, it touches a lot of families, uh, you know, with the opioid addiction and those sorts of things. Uh, it, it it touches a lot of folks, and so now I think people who. When it used to be that really trying to dig in and find the right solutions and maybe not the most politically expedient but the right solutions to some of these issues, now because it's become more prevalent and because it's received more attention nationally uh, and rightly so, I think we can start having a better conversation about it. And so uh, that's something that – I'm going to carry some legislation. I think hopefully we may file uh, – pre-file before session starts that that will implement – Um, You know some of the things that have come out of this justice reinvestment initiative and the whole idea is basically that we are smarter with how we do corrections and then we turn around and invest some of the savings uh, from those efficiencies back into things that really matter you know community behavioral health services and those sorts of things and so it's a very it's a long term uh, big picture view that will far outlive you know my next three or seven years in, in the state senate. But it is of tremendous value uh, in, in the long term view of, of how we treat these folks and how we, um, you know, try and, and, and fix this issue.
0: So I want to shift gears to actually the connection between federal and state politics. Um, I think that I was told by either Bram or the senator that uh, President Trump has signed the tax overhaul into law today. I, I may be mistaken about yeah, that. I that but-
1: happen. That's what the, my push notification said.
3: Twitter. Oh, Mr. The, Twitter
1: told yeah. us that. Yeah.
0: Oh, I, I I, I, have purposely like deemphasized paying attention to federal politics because <laughs> state and local politics takes up so much of my time. But I appreciate other people informing me about the world around me.
1: And we, um, we, what a, we appreciate you informing us about state and local politics, right. Jason. There should be more folks doing that as well. M-
0: my, my ego is already enormous and <laughs> it is growing by the minute. Um, you should come to the state what,
3: senate. No, I'm just joking. oh, my gosh,
0: uh, <laughs> my wife would probably divorce me if I even considered that. Um, so one of the reasons I want to bring this up is the, the standard deduction under this bill is double. Mm-hmm. And there is a feeling among many legislators that that could have a pretty significant impact on how much general revenue the legislature has for education, for for health care. Um, not maybe maybe not necessarily for roads, because roads often has more direct funding sources than state income tax. But we actually talked with State Treasurer Eric Schmidt about this issue a couple of weeks ago. We're coupled
2: with the the federal standard deduction. So whatever that is, that's what your standard deduction is. So in both bills, uh, the House and the Senate version at the federal level, they will double that standard deduction, which I think personally is a is a great thing for Families of all, especially low low income earners and middle class families, because back of the envelope arithmetic in Missouri, uh, over seventy five percent of Missourians use that standard deduction number, and that could rise to maybe somewhere between ninety percent. So that analysis is ongoing. The impact of the budget is still ongoing.
0: So i I think that the reason why people are paying attention to this is well, I don't think it's a hundred percent known how much money the state will will not have because of this. um I think that there's a feeling that if the tax system in Missouri isn't changed dramatically, there could be less money for all those things I just mentioned. On the other hand, uh the treasurer actually put out a statement yesterday warning legislators against decoupling the state deduction with the federal because. I think it would be seen as kind of a, a pro forma tax increase. Mm-hmm. What, what What's kind of the conversation that's going on along with Republicans and what do you think will happen in terms of this issue?
3: Well, I, I would say a couple of things. Generally, one, I think we need at the state level, we need to take it slow. I think it is it is unclear. And I think Treasurer Smith said it. Uh, it is unclear exactly how and at what level this will affect our bottom line. Um, I've talked to uh, Senate Appropriations and House Appropriations staff probably in the last two weeks, uh, and and there are various. I think they've they've honed in on the the idea that it may not the the number may not be nearly as big as initially thought because of some other things uh, in, in in the federal tax bill that will make some more positive uh, impacts on the state, not not necessarily economic growth, but but just kind of other um, structural things that have changed. So I mean, you know, I, I think we're in a world where this cuts a billion dollars out of our state budget, uh, I think that's a much different conversation than if it cuts 150 million. Right? I mean, 150 million is not small by any stretch of the imagination, but I just think the way that the, the way that we see things down there, th- those are two very different conversations with with urgency levels that are uh, probably a little bit different. And so, I, I think we need to take. I would say, you know, you take that slow. I think you take. Um, tax reform at our level this year probably you take slow because I think it probably is is worth watching um, a, a year of of this federal tax bill unfold. I think you take tax credit reform uh, uh, pretty slow uh, because I just think there's uh, some there's just uncertainties there and things that we cannot fully grasp. I think we can make projections and, and prognostications as to what we think it will if if we're trying to benefit our argument. Um, but but this is these, these are these are really um, you're talking about big numbers and you're talking about things that really impact our ability to invest in the things that we want to invest in. And so, yeah, I think I, I don't disagree with the treasurer or anything that he said. I mean, I think the idea that we could double the standard deduction and what that does for low, uh, low and middle class families is really substantive. I mean, I think it's kind of the generally I, I've, I've filed and have filed this year the earned income tax credit, which is a similar sort of thought process and how you provide Really substantive tax relief for middle class families, um, but this is another way that you do it. And so, I think uh, if 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 we do decide to decouple, uh, whether it be this year or, or years down the road, that's a that's a really um, it's a big conversation because it is inevitably it will get painted as a tax increase, whether or not it, it it actually is. And you can make you I've heard had various discussions about whether it falls under Hancock, and then you know if 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 that would actually have to go to a vote of the people, and and so. Um, there's just a lot of moving parts, and so I think uh, stepping back and and letting uh, a little bit of uh, uh, time uh, go go through the process from the when the federal tax bill uh, is signed and begins to work its way uh, into into law, uh, then then we can have a conversation that I think is more robust because it's 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 more fact driven and and not rhetoric driven.
1: Is there any conversation at all as you're looking at to see whether there's a you know a hundred million dollar impact or a yeah. billion dollar impact to the state budget? is there any conversation at all about establishing what kind of programs we might reduce funding for uh, in the state if we come to address that
3: yeah I, I think it, I, th- those conversations are really kind of always ongoing because the budget is always just the, the ebbs and flows are always there, and so I think uh, inevitably that falls on. the governor's going to release a budget initially that says, hey this is the money that we have to spend and here's what we think we should spend it on. And then uh, now Scott Fitzpatrick in the House um, will will take that, do his thing, and then we do our thing in the Senate. Um, you know, but you you do have to be mindful of, of uh, you know, these investments that we want to make. I mean, even I, I took the vote last year and was proud to do it uh, to fully fund uh, the education, the K through 12 formula. Uh, that was an amendment that passed on the floor but but because of that, it was a fifty some odd, maybe not even that much, but uh, forty or fifty million dollar uh, infusion into the formula. But because of that, that triggered the K, uh, the pre uh, early childhood um, bill, and so now we could have you know a hundred million dollars that needs to be put into it. And so we all uh, collectively, you, you got to think about these moving parts, and we have to think about it uh, in in kind of global terms. I mean, I'm hearing that maybe state. Uh, appropriation state revenue goes up by 300 million but medicaid costs this year are gonna go up by 450 million and so those are all all these things are very much connected and 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 the tax conversation at the federal level and the deductions and all of those things are certainly a part of that and and we get the chance to to uh, figure out how they all put work together in a puzzle
0: you you do represent the University of Missouri Columbia which is uh, a beloved institution by everybody um, and I'm, my tongue was a little bit in cheek there but i certainly love it i almost made um, it through without laughing but yeah yeah you were meant that was actually Loved the pause me. was meant to be a laugh That's for darn sure. um you know you know one of the things that happened this year was there were some pretty significant cuts to uh higher education institutions mm-hmm. primarily because when general revenue isn't what it's supposed to be one of the things that is pretty much easiest to cut are colleges and universities because the primary funding source is general revenue. Now, I, I don't know what the, the the actual like consensus revenue is yet, and I haven't obviously the governor hasn't released its budget. But do you foresee more cuts to colleges and universities if there if the revenue situation? Is again yeah. as challenging yeah. as it was this year.
3: Yeah, I, I hope not. Uh, you know, it's hard, it's hard to forecast right now because it, I, we don't know. I've I've heard what th- we think the CRE may be, but um, I think that's still maybe a week out. Um, and and you know, it's hard to there there can be a lot of fluctuation in in uh, you know year over year growth between December and and March uh, when we inevitably pass this budget, and so that kind of plays into it a little bit. You know, I, I think and have always advocated for the reality that. You know, budgets are about priorities, and and I always believe uh, that investing um, in, in K through 12 education certainly, but I think even more now in in higher education in two and four year institutions because of the um, because of the emphasis that has been placed in workforce development, but that that has become kind of a a trending topic uh, of things that people see as a real growth engine for uh, states. Uh, nobody does that better than um, our four- and two-year institutions. And so, it, again, it's kind of a long-term, big-picture view of how we do things in Jefferson City because you're right, there are these silos of money um, that, that are the big ones, and cor- corrections is a big one, the low, the smallest of the big ones, and it's gotten – Um, You know, it's gotten cut pretty drastically over the course of time. And then there's higher ed, which is probably the second one. K through 12, you know, it's really hard to cut. That's a political nightmare. Um, and, and, And then Medicaid, we're just kind of on the hook for it. And there's not a lot of changes that we can make there. I actually think that one benefit potentially of Um, A Trump administration is this emphasis to give some control back to the states because there is there there without doubt is there there's money to be saved in the Medicaid space. And I think Dr. Williams and others have talked about how we do that in a way that, you know, doesn't um, doesn't hurt the the quality of care for the folks that need it the most, but just does it in a way that is a little bit more efficient, a little bit more effective. Um, I think we can have some of those conversations. But, yeah, I, I mean, the higher ed fight's a tough one. Uh, and I think the the perception around the University of Missouri is drastically better than it was two years ago. I think Dr. Choi, Dr. Cartwright, uh, the, the the new infusion of curators, they are engaged at a level that I I don't ever remember them being engaged at. And I think they're all doing a, a bang up job. Uh, and it helps that now you know the football team's doing well. We've got a basketball coach that uh, I love, and and uh, a number one recruit that played two minutes and probably is going to go on. But um, you know, all those things play into it. This isn't what I said two years ago is that University of Missouri is more than a about a heck of a lot more than hunger strikes and, you know, a football team and Coach Pinkle and, you know, all these things that got people bent out of shape. Um, all of the things that we did well before that, we were still doing well in the midst of that and we're still doing well today. And so we've got to tell our story and we've got to tell it better. Uh, and, and I think we we what has always been the challenge. I think is is higher ed folks um, figuring out how to talk to and effectively articulate a plan uh, to a Republican majority and to a Republican governor. Now, I think sometimes there are just kind of uh, tension there that has to be worked through. Uh, But there are ways to do it, because at the end of the day, I think the the outcomes that people want are the same. It's just a matter of how you get there and being willing to engage. So uh, I'm hopeful that we can sidestep, you know, additional budget cuts and get back to a place where. Um, you know, we're investing in the things that we believe in.
1: It is nice to see the uh, football team and basketball oh, man.
3: winning games again, huh? I, I, if somebody – I went to the Stephen F. Austin game this uh, just a couple of days ago, and uh, it was a close game, you know, won by Great. a point. And somebody asked me – I didn't realize quite how animated I was being and how much I was yelling at the refs uh, in the moment. And then somebody, when we're walking out, asked me, Are, do you get that animated when you're in Jefferson City? <laughs> And I said, oh, I don't think so. I don't yell that much in Jefferson City, but apparently, I was kind of making a fool of myself. But I'm pretty. I'm a I'm a Mizzou basketball junkie. I love football. Coach Odom's awesome. He's a great guy. Uh, but I've always been a basketball junkie. So,
1: do you find yourself having to sell the university to your colleagues, like restore, yes. restore yes, all the
3: time? <laughs> but it's good. I mean, that, number one, it's my job. You know, I think as as somebody who, and I think I'm, I think I'm pretty well positioned for it because obviously I'm a Republican, and and understand what makes uh, republicans get to the places that they get ideologically and certainly some of the um, negative views that they've had towards the university of missouri and you know the things that you've got to things that are legitimate challenges that i've had many conversations back with our our government affairs team and dr Choi and others Have said hey look this is this is a real problem it's something you know perceptually that probably needs to change a little bit and you know so we've had those conversations and then there are some things that my colleagues uh, get mad about that are just dumb, and I we I tell them that they're dumb. You know the the amount of money that we're spending, the the the, the awesomeness of the pool or the rec center or you know these sorts of things and all these things that and inevitably the students are paying for that you know public dollars aren't paying for. But uh, so you just have to walk through folks uh, uh, sometimes with that. But uh, I think that's my job and it's something that I I think I'm uh, probably in a pretty good spot to do. So uh, I'll, we'll keep doing that.
0: For our last topic, I kind of want to circle back to uh, one of your colleagues that was mentioned in Marshall's feature, and that's Senator Gary Romine. Um, I, I do want to add I do want to play this clip uh, that was different from the feature, but maybe provides a, a broader question about the relationship between the governor and the legislature. Here is Senator Gary Romine of Farmington talking about Governor Eric Greitens' relationship with uh, the legislature and the Missouri Senate.
4: Uh, unless there's some Communication and communication is the key to any success. Uh, we're going to have some uh, struggles with this governor. There, there's some uh, serious angst, and 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 that the, there's been personal attacks against Senator Schaff, Senator Leibler, myself. There's been uh, underhanded uh, activities with State Board of Education, which there were several senators that feel like she was doing an extremely good job, and so therefore. Uh, we lost a friend and an ally in education, and, and the governor did it without really any participation or involvement of the Senate, that is supposed to be part of the confirmation process. He has built a wall that's going to make it very hard for the Senate, from my opinion, to be able to work with him on, on going forward.
0: So, do you agree with uh, Senator Romine that there a wall exists between the Republican-dominated legislature and the Republican governor?
3: I would say generally no. Uh, I think that there are, uh, for any number of reasons, and I I think both sides are to blame in in some ways. uh, You know, between certain senators and certain Republican senators and the governor, I think the 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 relationship may be beyond repair. Uh, You know, uh, on the board of education thing, uh, you know, I'm kind of probably in a weird spot in that I think, generally speaking, and hopefully I would say this if it was. Chris Coster taking over for a Republican governor, but you know, I think the governor should be able to have their their guy or, or gal in that position. Uh, it, it is a uh, it's a it's a position that uh, it takes huge priority in the budget and in policy areas, you know. And so, generally speaking, and I understand why it's set up the way that it is, and I think the the structure is right. Generally speaking, I think the person the governor should have the person that they want. With that being said you know, obviously the way in which they went about it uh, was, I think, really, really poorly executed. Uh, It was impatient uh, and it is going to cause problems. There's no question about it. And I think for folks who believe in the cause of education reform, I actually think it's pushed pushed that agenda back, you know, one, two, three, four years. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think generally speaking, um, I agree with Senator Romine that 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 there is no shortcut here, and that communication, you know, between the governor and his folks and us on any number of things, uh, you know, I, I didn't agree with how he did the Lytx stuff um, uh, because of the impact that that's going to have on my community. Um, but we've got to continue to have that dialogue, and I think if that dialogue ceases to exist, then I do think we have a real problem. I've I've met with the governor. Um, two or three times in the, the summer and fall on on various issues. And has he's always been pretty open and, and willing to meet with me uh, and, and some of my other colleagues that have been in those meetings. And so, you know, I think the reality is that we're going to have to come to grips with is this, this guy just does things differently, you know, like it or not. Uh, some of the policy things that he's done, I've liked. Some of the things that he's done, I haven't. Um, but I think this idea that we would push back for the sake of him uh, kind of getting back into the box that we create for him that's not going to happen that's just not who he is and i think we all, all are have seen enough now to to know that and so now i think our uh our um what we do moving forward as the senate is to understand okay we are a co-equal branch of government uh in january through may if there are 18 of us that are together on anything we have more power than the governor there's no question that that statement is true um, and so we have to understand how to use our power a little bit more effectively, and I think that means us working together, building coalitions. You know, understanding what fights to pick and what fights not to pick. I think part of part of the um, error that that folks who were really at odds with the governor last year, the error in their ways was that they picked too many fights. They tried to pick every fight and get involved in everything. If if the governor had his fingerprints on it at all, whether it was you know Blue Alert or some of these other things that they initially. Um, you know, tried to stop for those purposes. You, you can't, you can't pick those fights, uh, frankly, because number one, I, I just think it's foolish. But number two, um, you you are actually doing in kind what you think the flaw in the government's uh, in the governor's um, you know plan is. So if you think the governor is uh, being immature or being or, or you know acting outside of of the, the confines of how he should be operating in this relationship, you can't. I don't think it makes sense to match that with that. Uh, I think we have to, somebody inevitably is going to have to, we're going to have to work together. There's going to have to be some adults in the room and we're going to have to say, Hey, look, our constituents sent us here to do big things and we have a generational sort of opportunity. You, you know, the, the idea that there's a Republican governor and these bigger Republican majorities, it doesn't come come uh, across very often. And so I think we have a chance to, to really implement an agenda that we think is in the best interest of our state uh, for a generation. And so I think it is going to be imperative uh, that the governor and and my Senate colleagues and my House colleagues that we're just going to have to put some of this stuff aside and we're going to have to learn how to work together to get some of that stuff done. Because the reality is, if we don't, um, then then we, we uh, lose this opportunity. Uh, and inevitably, I think our lack of ability to govern eventually gets noticed by the voters. Uh, and that has bad ramifications in and of itself. So. Um I I'm, I'm going to keep pushing for for you know bridge building and not bridge burning. I think there's plenty of room for us to do that. There are going to be issues where we disagree and when those th- when those uh issues pop up, we should talk about it. Uh, and and I think talking about it is much much more effective than you know the governor running ads against senators or the senators uh, you know calling him out and um you know uh, all, all of the things that were said on Twitter about uh, about the governor last year by Republicans. I just I don't buy into that way of governing. I think it's a bit childish, and I also think it is completely counterproductive to us uh, doing what we were sent down there to do.
1: It is very surprising. I think you said it at the top of the show as well that you expect some kind of conflict no matter who the governor is at some point um, during the term, but maybe not this early on. What kind of steps... Uh, Can you take or or are you taking to open up some of those lines of communication?
3: Yeah, I've been, uh, you know, for the last month, month and a half, I think uh, once the Board of Education kind of debacle went down, I think we knew that what inevitably was going to be a kind of a weird session got a lot worse. Uh, And so now you've got, uh, you know, the the talks that I had heard from various folks, maybe not directly, but that that there were folks who wanted to kill all of the governor's appointees, you know, and go down this road of just – all-out chaos and mayhem. Um, I talked to those folks in, in some cases, and I said, hey, look, you know, I think there are some targeted areas where we can be effective. I think there's enough of a broad coalition ar- around the idea that these Board of Education folks probably um, need to get a really, really strong look, and I don't envision a scenario where all of them get get through the process. I, I think I've got a better chance of being eight feet tall than Jason Crowell has it being confirmed by the Senate uh, at this point, you know, so um, there, are, there are some wins that can happen. Right. And so I think for us, we have to find out what those wins can be and not get to a place where we just, just kind of are inciting chaos for chaos's sake. Uh, but, but really be diligent and and disciplined about uh, the fights that we pick and do them because they're worth fighting. Do them because there's a principled objection to this appointee or this piece of policy and not just because we don't like the governor or we don't, or we think that the Senator who's sponsoring the the bill is a a, a lackey for the governor. You know, that's just a, I think a, a, an immature way to look at things. And I think it's pretty, again, pretty uh, counterproductive to us trying to pass good policy. So uh, it it is going to be tough. I mean, it it really is. I think it's going to be a a, probably an unprecedented year uh, in a lot of ways, uh, but I don't think, and I haven't given up hope yet that, once we move past some of these things that we know are coming, um, that, that we can't move on and, and find ways to, to uh, you know, pass some good policies that, that we think are in the best interest of Missourians, but it's a, it's a, it's kind of a weird, kind of a weird deal. I picked a, I picked an interesting time to, to join the state senate. <laughs>
0: Well, I'm looking forward to also seeing you grow uh, eight feet tall when uh, (laughs) former Senator Krall somehow gets confirmed (laughs) on the Missouri House. Anything is possible
3: these days, man.
0: For all our stories, STLPublicRadio.org and KBIA.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Bram, how would people follow you on Twitter? Uh, B
3: e Sables. B e -S s a b l e s.
0: And how would people follow you on the World Wide Web, Senator?
3: Uh, Twitter, Caleb Rowden, CalebRowden.com, Facebook, Caleb Rowden. Just know my name and you're good to go.
0: Uh, That's that's a very good uh, line of advice. (laughs) We'll be back next time. Until then, so long.